Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Daniel DeHaan. Uh, Dr. DeHaan is a research fellow of the Ian Ramsey Center for Science and Religion at the Faculty of Theology and Religion at the University of Oxford. Uh, He works in association both with the Dominicans and the Jesuits, so the Dominicans at Blackfriars and the Jesuits at Campion. Uh, He is the principal investigator for the Conceptual Clarity Concerning Human Nature Project funded by the Templeton World Charity Foundation. Before coming to Oxford, Dr. DeHaan was a postdoctoral fellow in the Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge, working on the neuroscience strand of the Templeton World Charity Foundation Fellowships in Theology, Philosophy of Religion, and the Sciences Project, directed by Sarah Coakley. During this postdoctoral fellowship, he conducted research on the intersections of theology, philosophy, and neuroscience in Lisa Saxida's Translational Cognitive Neuroscience Laboratory in the Department of Psychology, University of Cambridge. He's been very generous in the past with giving lectures with the Thomistic Institute, uh, both in the UK and in the United States. And I can testify to the fact that he is uh, committed to the discourse, uh, and he's a man who is willing to discuss on a variety of themes with infinite patience, because I was not responsible for, but I volunteered to be his um, chauffeur uh, between like a couple of schools in South Texas to a couple of schools in you know mid-Texas, and it was delightful, utterly delightful. So I expect a similar result for you. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Don. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Um, thank you for the kind introduction. Um, being here and hearing um, the presentations has been a, um, an experience in humility of how little I know about a lot of things. Um, so um, I don't know if I can return the favor, but I'll do my best. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's, it's been very extraordinary. Um, yeah, every talk has been, um, I think in some ways, a, dis- uh, a demonstration of one of the points I'm gonna make about how distributed knowledges in communities and traditions of inquiry and that um, part of the confidence we have in a tradition of inquiry is the confidence in the other participants in that tradition of inquiry and um, there's been on display extraordinary competencies in areas in which I know nothing about and learned more of what I don't know about Um, so I'm I'm very grateful for that. Uh, Thank you very much. Um, I feel uh, how should I put it? I feel uh, being treated with sort of extraordinary um, kindness and generosity in that the Dominicans sometimes provide a chauffeur for me and drive me around Texas to give TI talks. And, and now I have um, someone to help me with my slides. It might also just show the kind of another kind of incompetencies that I have of getting around and taking care of my own presentation. Thank you so much. So I'm gonna cover briefly um, three topics. Uh, well not briefly, but very fast. Um, The question of uh, what is truth? How does truth fit within inquiries and traditions of inquiry? And then I want to very way too quickly go through um, a topic that kind of locks in a little bit with um, um, how Dan ended his presentation and talking about the concept of species and take a stab at the role of certain disputes and problems about biological species concepts within, um, within the Thomas tradition. 
and it will be very fast, and so it might be something we have to argue a little bit more about um, later on in the discussion. I should also caveat that I'm not a philosopher of biology, I'm not a philosopher of neuroscience, so I'm very much a dabbler in many things, and one of the things about dabbling with things that can blow up is they can blow up. And so you all can tell me how much I don't really know what I'm doing um, by dabbling in some of these areas. But about truth, I know a few things. Uh, we should start thinking about the role of truth in our everyday lives and not so much in a kind of theoretical tone of voice, which is, you know, I'm saying all this in a theoretical tone of voice, but we should begin to step back from that theoretical tone of voice and reflect on the every way, everyday ways in which truth just shows up in just disagreements and agreements and looking for your keys of trying to figure out who planned to do what and who failed to do what, the ways in which truth shows up in storytelling and storytelling both about our own lives and ways in which we inaccurately tell the details of what occurred and the ways in which we reflect on how stories um, and narratives that are about sometimes even truth-telling and the importance of truth-telling, like trying to teach her three-year-old the boy who cried wolf and the relevance of this for her own behavior and things along those lines. So truths are important in storytelling, assertions, and everyday practical judgments, and in theoretical judgments as well. And the source of our understanding and development and elaborations of questions about theoretical truth have their source in our elaborations and sophistications, um, systematizations of ways of using truth in our everyday lives, in our pre-theoretical lives. Also important is that truth and knowledge, like other virtues, um, family, religious life, and friends, are all what Aquinas calls um, bona anesta. They're noble goods. They're things that are goods in themselves, which means they have a very important place within our lives. They're goods to which we have to coordinate other noble goods around, and there's sometimes noble goods that constitute the pursuit of other noble goods, so like the role of truth and various virtues of truthfulness and trustworthiness and sincerity, those virtues often are indispensable for the pursuit of these other noble goods or bona venesta, like family, religious life, and various um, vocations, careers, things along those lines. So that's why there's these key virtues that are dedicated to pursuing, achieving, and safeguarding truth and knowledge like the virtues of truthfulness, trustworthiness, sincerity, and others. Truth is a noble good also, interestingly, that's a common good. Not all noble goods are common goods, but many are. And truth is one of those common goods because it's a good that is shareable and it's not diminished by being shared. And despite the efforts of the scientists to try to share some of their goods, I'm not sure how much I took them on, but they are not diminished in their knowing by sharing their knowledge to their students. When their students acquire that knowledge, that good is not diminished in any way. It, you know, um, it, it reproduces without diminishment. There's much more we could say about all these themes, but I think they're at least a kind of way to get our feet flat on the ground and firm before we launch out into orbit of our theoretical inquiries. Walker Percy has this nice kind of image in uh, his uh, self-help book, the last self-help book, Lost in the Cosmos, and he often talks about how theory and artists, um, scientists, they sort of launch out into space and they try to establish a stabilized order orbit, um, but then they often have re-entry problems when they come back into the everyday life of the world. And so this is meant to be kind of a reflection on a, a similar kind of, or developments of that kind of metaphor that we have our everyday life here in a terrestrial way and our theoretical inquiries are launching out into space and trying to establish various stable orbits. And to what extent do we have re-entry problems when we try to bring the conclusions of those inquiries back into the terrestrial zone. About truth, I wanna briefly talk about four features about truths. 
conformity of mind to reality, the importance of fallibilism or the vulnerability required for making assertions about the truth, the importance of sociological self-knowledge and limitations of perspective and understanding how we arrived at the truth, and then various kind of liabilities to misunderstandings or misapplications that are inherent or incidental to the way we articulate truth claims, the ways that we articulate our theories, or that might be actually deep problems in our theories that we haven't come to recognize yet. So wonder and its relationship to inquiry, which is more formulaic, more thematized form of inqu inquiry is itself a more thematized version of wonder, which is satisfied by truth. Aristotle famously states in a number of places, but this is one of them, of his account of what is truth. For state of that which is, that it is not, or of that which is not, that it is, is false. And to state of that which is, that it is, and of that which is not, that it is, is not true. Put more simply, the idea of truth here is that truth is the conformity of one's mind to reality. And if you assert something or think something that is otherwise than the way things are in the world, you've thought something or asserted something that's false. Or if you've said something that it is not, but it is, you've said something that's false. Following kind of Lonergan and the constitutives of knowing, we can think of truth as the conformity of one's rational understanding of things as they are. And it's comprised of rationally judged intelligent understanding of experiences of realities as they are. The unrestricted desire to know or wonder, it's measured and perfected by the ever augmenting aim to conform one's mind to being and thereby to the being that is the source and measure of all beings. What does that mean? Wonder is the sort of open-ended inquiry and questions lead to other questions. And there's a kind of systematic interlocking and logical connections of questions and you might have conformed your mind to a very simple truth, like there's a row of chairs in the front here. But you can ask further questions about that, and you can conform your mind in ever-enlarging sort of circles or horizons. And to truly conform your mind to reality is not just this reality or that reality, but how does that reality relate to that reality? So having a judgment about one chair that can be true and another chair that can be true, you can start asking questions about where are the chairs? You can ask when are the chairs? You can ask, what's the relationship of the chairs to other kinds of objects? So there's always an over-expanding horizon that sort of seems unlimited. And there's sort of the, the attempt to conform one's mind to reality, to know truth, is a sort of, for us, as finite inquirers, is asthmatotic. It's always reaching out for something that's much more. And for that kind of total conformity would require being able to know everything, to be able to know of all of being. But that's going to be a sort of, it is the God's, God's um, knowing. God's kind of point of view. So there is, there is actually a real limit, but it's not a limit for us. It's not a limit that's achievable by us. There's much more to be said about this relationship, but that's a bit too much metaphysics, and we're supposed to be doing more natural philosophy and things like that. As McIntyre points out in his um, reflections on fides et ratio, there's three important features about truth that Aquinas identifies for us. First, there's a conception of truth as adequatio. This is like this conformity as consisting in the agreement of the mind's judgments as to how things are with how things, judgments as to how things are with how things are. An agreement which results from the mind being causally influenced by how things are. For because the mind is receptive in regard to things, it is in a certain sense moved by things and is consequence measured by them. Secondly, the mind in moving to achieve the truth 
thus defined, not only cannot but treat truth as a good, that is the perfection and the fulfillment of the mind, but as a conception of the truth to be achieved as its specific goal. And thirdly, the mind cannot dispense with the conception of an absolute standpoint. So there's something about truth and this conception of conformity of mind that requires an absolute standpoint, a divine standpoint, that from which things would be viewed as they truly are. I think it's very important to distinguish this divine standpoint from a view of a view from nowhere and sort of certain claims as objectivity is achieving a certain sort of a view from nowhere. That's already a very misleading way of characterizing human knowing as like objectivity is reaching out to have a view from nowhere. There's always a view from somewhere. And the ultimate kind of knowing of things would be the divine knowing, which is also not a view from nowhere. Now, about the truth as a conformity of mind to reality, we have to recognize ways in which the mind has to conform to the kind of human finite subjectivity of humans, as well as the relative context and the finiteness of humans. So it wouldn't be a true kind of truth if the view about truth conforming to reality didn't make some recognition, an important, accurate recognition, of the role of subjectivity in coming and arriving at the truth, as well as one's perspective and context. So you might see subjectivism and relativism, errors as they are, nevertheless drawing our attention to important insights that we wouldn't want to miss in our account of truth. We'd be failing to conforming to the nature of how we arrive at the truth if we weren't clear about the role and the importance of why subjectivity and why relative contexts matter. Subjectivism um, is, uh, so I say here, the truths distorted by subjectivism and relativism are corrected by virtues of truthfulness and trustworthiness and intellectual virtues. And so being a subject matters for thinking about truth. And a desire for knowing and being correct matters about truth. And that sometimes that's misplaced in subjectivism by, by a concern of being offended by being told that someone's wrong. What's more deeper there is an underlying desire, whether they recognize it or not, to want to know the truth. And they're offended or upset that someone has told them that they are wrong or that they're incorrect or that their point of view isn't being considered, which starts to shift a little bit more the issue of what relativism is, which is the very real claim that perspective matters. Different contexts and perspectives matter for truth. Those are real factors of limitations or different ways of looking at something. It doesn't mean that they all are necessarily accurate or right, but there are ways of having to conform one's mind that takes real, relative um, context into consideration. And part of that is also the fact that humans are developing independent rational animals. They're finite inquirers. They're limited in their ability to inquire and know. Human persons are finite inquirers that engage in developing and socially dependent practices of inquiry, which are radically incomplete and inadequate to the depths and the breadths of beings. Human knowing is socially and historically distributed knowing, and it's constitutive, it is constituted of participants within traditions of inquiry and knowing. So part of conforming our mind to the truth is taking this into account when thinking about how do we conform our minds to reality. A second point is about the importance of fallibilism. Um, and that one of the things about making truth assertions is being able to recognize the importance of being vulnerable. Truth assertions require a certain level um, um, commitment to the vulnerability of being false, right? To be able to make a claim that's true, you also need to be able to be vulnerable to it being false. Otherwise, you would just be infallible. As McIntyre writes, only types of inquiry we have had to learn from Pierce and Popper which are organized so that they can be defeated by falsification of their key theses, can warrant judgments to which the truth can be ascribed. 
the ways in which such falsification can occur and such defeat become manifest are very various. But in some way or another, falsification and defeat must remain possibilities for any mode of inquiry, and it is essential to any theory that claims truth and to the inquiry to which it contributes that they should be vulnerable in this regard. So assertions or stands taken can only be put forward as true insofar as they're vulnerable to falsification. And confidence in some position being true is insufficiently justified if it's only based on becoming articulate and providing positive arguments for one's position and negative arguments against rival positions. And one of the things that is true about most of us, I think, is that we become quite confident at this. We can become very confident, and it's an, it's an indispensable competency to becoming very good at giving positive arguments for your own view and very powerful substantive objections to rival views. Having good reasons for thinking other views are false and having really substantive arguments for why you think your view is true. That's indispensable and it's no surprise that we spend so much time on these two features, especially in our theoretical inquiries. But we often are very inarticulate in the second dimension concerning falsification. We're often very inarticulate in the confidence that would be required, um, the, what would be required for having confidence in the vindication and justification for one's positions is true, which also requires becoming articulate and identifying what facts or premises, if shown to be otherwise, would render one's assertions false and compel one to revise one's views or change one's mind. It's, it's very difficult to articulate and honesty and sincerity to like, you know, put your money down on the table and say, if this was wrong, I would have to say I'm wrong, right? If this was otherwise, this would be incorrect. You try to think through, it's, I mean, it's a really difficult test. I'm committed to hylomorphism. What are the kind of serious theses would allow me to like give that up? Like, could I really be convinced out of that? Am I willing to recognize that if you could show this was otherwise, I would have to think phylomorphism was wrong. Often it's more adjacent positions. So like if Thomas' thylomorphism was wrong, I would probably become a, a scotist. <laughs> Look at these guys. Would you guys rather be atomists? Is that the next logical place? That, that's, that's a reason. If, if it's wrong, that's a reasonable move. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not. <laughs> So I think it, 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 yeah, anyway, so my point here is just that it, it's very difficult to have that level of self-critical honesty and reflection on major substantive views you're committed to. What would be the conditions under which that you would change your mind? And that allows a certain sort of vulnerability in dialectical arguments that you put out on the table and say, show me what's wrong here. And if you could do that, I'd at least have to radically rethink or revise or come up with some other way of defending the view or maybe have to give it up. That, that's like real humility about the truth and like a real deep concern about why you feel so justified and vindicated and confident in some assertion is true is because you can lay out really clearly in great detail the varieties of things that would be otherwise that would lead you to change your mind. That, that is something that would show a certain level of confidence and the vulnerability to being able to see why it was not um, taken to be true. And this is why it's so important um, in theoretical inquiries to engage in types of competitive, comparative theoretical inquiries, of looking with respect to debates that you have, but also more wide-ranging debates, um, uh, debates that are sort of outside the, the normal kind of spectrum of debates that you would otherwise normally consider. So confidence requires being able to identify minor difficulties, but also major epistemological crises within a particular position you hold or traditions of inquiry. And this brings us to what McIntyre calls sociological self-knowledge. 
Now, he introduces this first in a kind of more existential, practical way, but it's also applicable for theoretical factors. So one question you might ask is, why are you, at a participant in the fifth annual Thomistic Philosophy and Natural Science Symposium, Uncertainty, Confidence, and Truth in the Sciences? And why would your colleagues not be here, or would they never be here, or why might they be, at, like, I don't know, whatever the alternative kind of thing to this is? Um, and then furthermore, what kind of justification would you give for why you're at something like this? Would it be something that's sort of existential, something that's practical, something that's theoretical, something that unites them? Is the practical reason sort of at odds with the theoretical reasons? Answering these sorts of questions isn't just going to be laying out theses and theories. It's also be going to require telling a kind of narrative, telling a certain kind of story about how you came to be a, um, a kind of theoretical inquirer how your theoretical inquiries are related to a set of existential and practical commitments you have, and how those existential and practical commitments have influenced the trajectory of your theoretical inquiries. And maybe also helps clarify why the alternative existential practical commitments of your colleagues has made various difficulties in the pursuit of the kind of theoretical inquiries you're engaged in. And these are two intertwined forms of justification that require kind of self-knowledge of how has your inquiries fit within your life? How do they fit within the larger, broader inquiries within the theoretical traditions that you're involved in? And what role do my pre-theoretical commitments play in shaping my theoretical inquiries? Is it because I'm a scientist or an atheist or a naturalist that I'm a physicist? Is it because I'm a theist that I'm a physicist? Do those two things rule each other out? Are people prematurely jump to assumptions that some of those pre-theoretical commitments would rule out your involvement in certain theoretical inquiries? And what sort of big picture stories or narratives about science and human beliefs about the ultimate nature of reality would influence why some people have adopted narratives that if you're in the hard sciences, you're not a theist? Why have older generations thought those two things are perfectly compatible? So those are the sort of important intertwining conceptions of both narratives of one's own life, but also narratives of a particular discipline, of a particular theoretical inquiry, and the relationship of those to um, the theories themselves. Part of this, then, is thinking, too, further about the significance of one's biography and various authoritative indoxa on one's theoretical inquiries and commitments. Every theoretical inquiry inherits a set of indoxa. These are reputable opinions. By having to follow a curriculum, you're taking a curriculum, whether you realize it or not, to be authoritative on your formation in organic chemistry, in neuroscience, in ancient philosophy, the canonical texts that you are being taught, the certain sort of experiments that you are taught to learn how to do and how to do well, those are functioning authoritatively upon you that you have to trust the authority of the institution, of the professors, of the curriculum, that by doing these, you will transform yourself to have a set of competencies that will then allow you to evaluate why these were the things you should learn. And we'll also give you a competency to critically evaluate and say some of these experiments we shouldn't have been taught or we were taught in the wrong ways. Some of the things we were forced to read shouldn't have been canonical or shouldn't have been treated this sort of way. Or the discipline has moved beyond this, but the particular institution I was studying at hadn't moved beyond this. So even being able to have that viewpoint of criticism with respect to your own formation owes something to the transformations that that formation provided to you. 
McIntyre writes in Three Rival Versions of Moral Inquiry, by accepting authority, one acquires a teacher who both introduces one to certain texts and educates one into becoming the sort of person capable of reading those texts with understanding. Texts in which such persons discovers the story of him or herself, including the story of how he or she was transformed into a reader of these texts. And you might also extend this not to just texts, but the inactive drama of reenacting experiments of the past and trying to get them to work and then the professor's being like, yeah, it doesn't always really work, and you kind of have to do the numbers this way or this sort of thing. <laughs> this story of oneself is embedded in the history of the world, an overall narrative within which other narratives find their place. That history is a movement towards the truth becoming manifest, a movement towards intelligibility. But in the course of discovering the intelligibility of the order of things, we also discover why at different stages, greater or lesser degrees of unintelligibility remain. And in learning this, we learn that authoritative testimony to point us forward from where we are now can never in our present bodily life be dispensed with. So there's a role of this distributed authoritative testimony that's indispensable to the kind of inquiries of human life, whether they be existential, practical, or theoretical. So continuous authority receives its justification as indispensable to a continuing progress, the narrative of which we first learn how to recount from that authority and the truth of which is confirmed by our own further progress, including that progress made by means of dialectical inquiry. So part of the point here is that all theoretical inquiry depends upon a kind of epistemic authority and testimony. An enlightenment project of a scientific revolution does not shuffle off the indispensable epistemic role of testimony and authority that remains ever as abundant and ever as important for theoretical inquiry. It's indispensable to theoretical inquiry. So in what ways, and to achieve this kind of sociological self-knowledge, you'd have to ask questions like, in what ways does the finitude and historically situated character of my theoretical inquiries limit or blind me from aiming to conform my mind to reality? Having studied certain psychological concepts of memory in one research program, is gonna make it very unlikely that I've ever even encountered other conceptions of memory and other scientific research programs. I don't go to the same conferences they go to. They might even be in the same building, like one floor down. But they engage in autobiographical memory and we do long-term memory. They do, you know, hardcore bench work, behavioral kind of stuff with mice and rodents. We do uh, memory tests with peoples and sort of questionnaires and these sorts of things. We go to different conferences, we publish in different places. We don't really communicate with each other at all. We're really quite oblivious to each other's parallel research, even though it might have a lot of interesting overlap. Or the way that work on certain consciousness studies, alternatively working memory, or alternatively fluid intelligence. These are also different research programs in psychology that don't really interact with each other, but there's a lot of things that overlap within them. And I'm sure within your own disciplines, you can think of similar kinds of examples. Or it might just be that psychology is way more dysfunctional than biology and chemistry and <laughs> physics, but I don't know. Part of the importance of this is sociological self-knowledge is reflecting on both the strengths and the limits, the inevitable limits and narrowness of a particular curriculum, of a particular research institution, of a particular research program or tradition of inquiry, and what things have I never ever considered because it's just never even come up. What might then be certain objections that would falsify certain claims that I'm committed to because I've never even considered them. I've never even thought about them because they've never been part of the canon or the authoritative texts I've taken seriously so far. 
So this point, the reason why sociological self-knowledge is a kind of elaboration on fallibilisms is it attempts to try to bring about a self-knowledge that allows you to recognize types of objections that might falsify your views that you haven't even considered so far. They've been concealed from view. So if there's an expectation to become extremely articulate and the sort of things that would falsify your view, you need to try to become more articulate about the things you've never even thought about that might falsify your view. So this would be requiring a kind of discerning of radical objections that are largely concealed from your view of point because they haven't ever seemed relevant so far. And this occurs in a lot of different ways. Some of them, certain ways in which they import theoretical implications for everyday life, might be influenced by the narrowness or the you know, capaciousness of one's existential worldview. Some, some pre-theoretical commitments is the way that, of mediating how they interpret theoretical conclusions. So we would need to be able to discern these different conflicts of everyday life and existential worldviews, different conflicts that are within our particular tradition of inquiry, so conflicts within Thomism, conflicts between rival traditions of theoretical inquiry, Thomas versus Scotus, Thomas and Scotus versus Kantians, Thomas and Scotus and Kantians versus Hegelians, but also conflicts between rival conceptions of inquiry and its ends. Thomas, Scotus, Kantians, Hegelians, in some sense, all think that truth is the object of inquiry. But you might have certain Nietzschean conceptions where truth is not the object of inquiry, that the object of inquiry is just one more version of a will to power and a kind of self-assertion or a kind of aestheticization, right? I'm a theoretical physicist, and that's a kind of way of being in the world that I've just sort of aesthetically curated for myself, but it's not really an inquiry about truth. So these are different kinds of conflicts that we would all need to be aware of to bring out further ways in which there are objections from these debates that we might not even have on our radar that could be serious objections to commitments and views that we have. Right, so here, here's some more examples of identifying these different kinds. So from our existential worldview, um, different kinds of disagreements that occur practically, and then examples theoretically. So uh, rival Thomas accounts of age and elect abstraction, or the metaphysics, or sorry, the natural philosophy of individuation. You guys like those distinctions that it's natural philosophy, not metaphysics, all right. Um, but also debates um, within, say, Evo Devo accounts in evolution, or even between then, on the second stage, disagreements between rival theoretical traditions of rational inquiry. Um, and here I have an example for um, an ongoing discussion with Paul of who, you know, some people might think modern versus the extended evolutionary synthesis is, a, is an argument between two paradigms or two traditions, but others would actually say, no, it's in the first one. And that's another kind of debate that you don't think that this is a debate between two traditions of inquiry. It's actually a debate within a single tradition of inquiry. And then, as I said, there can be rival strains, trans, strands, sorry, stands on different aims of rational inquiry. All right, there's a lot more to be said about that, and I apologize that my examples are all philosophical and not scientific, um, but I hope that you can fill it in a little bit. How oh, this was for Paul. So this is uh, meant to be um, part of the debate between the modern um, uh, evolutionary synthesis and then the extended evolutionary synthesis, and whether or not you think what's on one side um, are paradigm-changing disagreements, or this is a debate within a single tradition. And we're not gonna go through this. Um, this is just for Paul's sake. And Seth. All right, finally, a fourth point. So liabilities to misunderstandings and pathologies. 
So this is, a, I think, an important insight from Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor defends uh, what's called, what he calls the ethics of authenticity. And he thinks the ethics of authenticity has been incidentally corrupted since it's sort of insight in people like um, some German romantics, um, like um, people like Herder, as well as earlier in, 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 in Rousseau. But he thinks it's been corrupted into a kind of atomistic individualism and instrumentalization. But part of what Taylor's trying to do is show that there's actually a deeper insight here that's been only incidentally corrupted. Now, I think Taylor's incorrect about that. I think there's actually an inherent pathology to the ethics of authenticity, but it's an important insight to think about your theory and how it's received in its articulation. Are misunderstandings and misapplications of your view due to incidental features of just how it's been received in the mode of the recipient? Or are there actually inherent problems, pathologies that are implications of your particular view? You might think of kind of very simplistic debates between capitalism and Marxism as functioning off in this way, like Marxism has never been tried and so there's not actually something wrong with it, or capitalism has never actually been entirely tried so there's not anything inherently wrong with it. But that, that'd be one way of framing that debate, but you might also think like the, the implications of them are so incredible and trying to realize them would be so impossible that that's the reason why no one has actually tried. There's something inherently problematic about both of them. So this is just an important point that when we think about our theories and we think about our theoretical commitments and um, inquiries, are the implications of them that are problematic, like recurrent disagreements or misunderstandings in the, our interlocutors, is that due to something in our view, in our articulation, or is it something that's more incidental and it has to do with the way that it's been received by others? If it does turn out that there seems to be some inherent pathology or epistemological crisis within our view, how do we deal with it? Does this mean we falsified our theory and our theoretical tradition? Is it some minor element that can be revised? We can be, still be Thomas, but we just have Hecheity. Does that mean that we're no longer Thomas if we adopt some sort of scotistic ultimate difference? What sort of paradigm changing or tradition, um, what factors lead to the tradition changing or um, becoming a new paradigm? Why is like Aquinas not just, say, like an Augustinian? What are the new significant innovations in Aquinas that make him more than just an Augustinian? So what is an epistemological crisis? This is a technical term in McIntyre. He says epistemological crises may occur in the history of individuals. So they occur in individuals' lives. Being betrayed by someone who you thought could never betray you is a type of an epistemological crisis. But they also occur in um, theoretical thinkers, and they occur to theoretical traditions. Thinkers as various as Augustine, Descartes, Hume, and Lacoste have left us records of such crises, as well as in that of groups. But they can also be crises in and for a whole tradition. We've already noticed the central to a tradition constituted inquiry at each stage in its development will be its current problematic, that agenda of unsolved problems and unresolved issues by reference to which its success or lack of it in making rational progress towards some further stage of development will be evaluated. Those aren't pathologies of a, of a tradition. That's what a tradition of inquiry is doing. It's, it's got an agenda of a set of problems that it's supposed to be trying to address. At any point, it may happen to any tradition constituted inquiry by its own standards of progress that it ceases to make progress. Sorry, that, yeah, that it ceases to make progress. Its hitherto trusted methods of inquiry have become sterile and conflicts over rival answers to key questions can no longer be settled rationally. Moreover, it may indeed happen that the use of the methods of inquiry and the forms of argument by means of which rational progress had been achieved so far begins to have the effect of increasing disclosing new inadequacies, hitherto unrecognized incoherencies, 
and new problems for the solution of which there seem to be insufficient or no resources within the established fabric of belief. This kind of dissolution of historically founded certitudes is the mark of an epistemological crisis. I'm gonna come back in just a moment to some epistemological, one epistemological crisis concerning species. It's 2.37. Um, is that a stop time? No, it's 2.25. Okay. No, I, no 2.30, yeah, yeah. Okay, for overall, I didn't, okay, gotcha. The whole, the whole session's done at 2.30. The whole session is yeah, done at 2.30. Yeah, that's what I meant. Okay. Oh, we have a little flex time. All right. Yep. Okay, so what I want to now briefly talk about is um, three ways that tr truth shows up in our lives that I've sort of been glossing over so far. Inquiries and stands in our lives concern at least three ways of dividing up the way in which we inquire and we make judgments and commitments. What I've been so far calling an existential worldview and practical pursuits and theoretical inquiries. And I think it's important to recognize the way in which theoretical inquiries come out of a set of pre-existing practical existential worldview commitments. Our existential worldview and our theoretical pursuits are always taking things in the relationship to us. It's, it's a, like a wholly anthropocentric sort of project. And that's just what it is. Theoretical pursuits are launched out of that, where we try to think about things in relationship to each other in a systematic way. We aren't always trying to define things as they relate to us, even though we're always inquirers trying to relate to them. We're trying more and more asymptotically to reach out and defy one thing in relationship to another thing, rather than simply as they relate to us and they show up for us. And these are always the inquiries and stands for developing dependent rational animals. As I've said, that there's a social developmental education and an initiation to relevant authoritative and doxa or reputable beliefs. And this occurs first existentially and practically, long before it ever happens theoretically. Right? Just the cultural and the milieu that you're brought up within is going to shape the existential worldview as being Catholic, or as being Muslim, or as being agnostic, or as being a nun, right? That's going to be influenced largely in a kind of an inherited way before you choose to make it your own or not make it your own. How do we vindicate or verify or revise these various authoritative indoxa? How do we make them consistent or inconsistent or incoherent with respect to each other? By an existential worldview, I mean two things. An existential worldview is one's perspective on what exists in reality. It's sort of like common sense ontology. So it's like the worldview is like everything that is and what exists in that. But I also mean um, something more um, French in the sense of existentialism, of a kind of what exists in reality as it pertains normatively to the directionality, purpose, and meaning of one's life, living, dying, and death. And those two things are intertwined. By practical inquiries and stands, I mean both everyday activities that we engage in as well as more long-term activities and the way in which we rank order various normative goals one pursues as governed by one's inarticulate or articulate normative existential worldview. So the practical stuff we do every day is always situated within an existential worldview, right? You're doing the business of Christianity every day, even though it has some ultimate orientation, an ultimate orientation that's just as much here as it is in the future, right? So the existential worldview is governing not just some distal future, it's governing what's also going on here and now and setting a framework for the everyday um, practices. It's from out of this and a long education that one begins to become educated into a set of theoretical inquiries. So we shift from things in relation to us to a type of systematic asymptotic inquiry concerning things in relation to other, not a view from nowhere. Right? So you just might 
you know, grow up on a farm and engage in a lot of farming practices, growing hay, growing alfalfa, you know, and get suddenly interested in going to, you know, university and getting interested in agriculture, and then maybe getting interested in genetics via a sort of practical interest in agriculture. There's any number of ways in which that story could be carried out for any of our lives, and each of you would have a different story about what was it, what was this element or items within your everyday practical lives and education that led you to launching off into some more specific theoretical inquiries. These systematic theoretical investigations are always sourced from these practical and existential inquiries, and they can influence, they can transform, or vindicate, challenge, verify, or even falsify features of one's practical existential worldview. So theoretical inquiry on this model is akin to a laser beam that's homing in on some minuscule aspect of reality that's situated within the horizon of one's existential worldview, practical inquiries, and stances. It's focusing on making things very articulate, but out of a horizon or context that's often very inarticulate. And theoretical inquiry thereby provides a kind of enriching abstraction of whatever falls within that narrow aperture. But it's always an abstraction from everything else. It's not containing everything. Theoretical inquiry is leaving behind a lot. And to the extent that a theoretical inquiry imperialistically rejects or dismisses all that it's abstracted from, while forgetting that its theoretical inquiries have abstracted from everything else, it can degenerate into a kind of impoverishing abstraction. It's also very important to always recognize that theoretical inquiries are themselves types of practical activities. It's a type of practice within a theoretical inquiry that requires becoming transformed into a competent practitioner, a participant within a tradition of theoretical inquiry. And with the lecture you gave on chemistry, I had no idea there were so many different kinds of practices and instruments and kinds of things that you have to do. Like, it was very, very clear the kinds of long-term kinds of transformation of learning different kinds of tools and methods of trying to, and you can't imagine, I can't imagine the kind of um, difficult failed attempts to figure out the right way to, to um, isolate these various um, uh, chemical compounds. I mean, just incredible kinds of transformations of techniques requiring centuries of people to work out. It's important to recognize, of course, that very few humans engage in practices of theoretical inquiry, and most lives entirely inhabit an existential worldview and practical inquiries and stands of mere common sense. But even when we engage in theoretical practices of inquiry, we are always um, we are always still members of the world of common sense. Increasingly few, if any, human lives remained untouched by the transformative influences of theoretical inquiries. So, common sense, practical, existential worldview is always being updated by theoretical inquiries in technology and in agriculture, industry, transportation, warfare, medicine, law, media. These are all everyday features of our lives now that have been radically transformed by theoretical inquiry. All right, let me skip ahead if you actually. All right, so I'm gonna skip ahead to the biology section. So quite a ways ahead actually, where it says, yep, perfect, oh, there we go. So much more could be said about the role of theoretical inquiry, the way in which they fit within our lives, but I think it's important to kind of have like a big picture um, at least one something we can disagree about, about the relationship of theoretical inquiries, how they are or launched out from our everyday lives, and then also how does reentry work? How do they become 
practical, again, how do they become relevant for transforming and shaping our lives? I mentioned a few things about epistemological crises, and I want to try to focus on one in particular for the Thomist tradition. And this is the, the idea and the role of like how do certain theoretical inquiries in biology, especially thinking about the evolution of species, suggest or bring about problems, maybe even perpetual problems, for say the Aristotelian Thomist tradition's conception of species. And I will do this very quickly so it won't be convincing. Um, but if I went slow, it'd be very convincing. <laughs> So these are a number of, I think, what you could highlight as potential epistemological crises within the Thomist tradition that re might require drawing on other traditions or require some sort of deep insight into trying to move forward on these inquiries. Species, whether they're treated metaphysically or biologically, and then how does speciation occur, a concept that wouldn't have occurred for an Aristotelian? How do new species come into being from prior species? There's, of course, this debate that Brian um, Carl mentioned about virtual presence and unicity of substantial forms. There's also debates about prime matter and the continuity through substantial change. And then, of course, there's also um, this debate that's been alluded to a few times about whether we can start metaphysical inquiry as independent from natural philosophy or if it has some essential dependence on natural philosophy. And we could have a, an extended list. And maybe some might not think that these are epistemological crises within the tradition. Others might think that they've been completely resolved but that might be some of the indication of why they are a perpetual problem. <laughs> so, I want to focus on reconciling two concepts of species and speciation. You might roughly think that, here's the problem. Thomistic Aristotelian conceptions of biological species are unchanging and are defined by intrinsic factors of individuals. Whereas now, many, but not all, as we've seen, uh, scientific conceptions of biological species change and are defined by lineages within populations or between populations. So you might say hylomorphic speciation pertains to a new individual substance generated by other substances, if there was such a thing as hylomorphic speciation, which I think there is. In contrast to, say, like Ernst Mayer's uh, biological concept of speciation pertains more to populations of individual substances and Second, you have got a single intergenerational transformation versus many multi-generational transformations. And then it's going to be a type of simultaneous change, one substantial form displacing another actualizing of matter versus gradual change within populations of individuals over an enormous time span. Right? So how could you possibly reconcile these two different concepts of species and speciation? Let me show you how. <laughs> first thing to recognize is that there's a way, I think, of talking about substantial change and identifying it just with the paradigmatic kind of substantial change. That's generation corruption. One substance corrupts, another generates. How this often, or how this occurs, is often precipitated by a series of accidental attribute changes, right? So a series of accidental attribute changes happen. Often what happens is the coordination of our attributes or accidents becomes so destabilized that it starts leading to types of changes of the parts of a substance and that is what then leads to the actual simultaneous generation corruption of a new substance. So that's like the basic kind of Aristotelian model. Substantial changes don't occur independently from substances' parts changing and those parts changing in virtue of their accidents changing. And what happens is that those parts and accidents become so destabilized that it, it precipitates and crosses a threshold that leads to then the substance corrupting and other substances being generated. But it's also recognized, important to recognize that Aristotelians 
maybe not so always so clear, do identify other kinds of change within the category of substance. In other words, other kinds of substantial change that are not types of generation and corruption. One is substantial ontogenesis. So both organogenesis and the development of changes from an embryo to a fetus to an infant to a juvenile to an adolescent and on to senescence. Those are all types of not just accidental changes, but actual changes of a substance, insofar as a substance is an organic one that has a developmental life. Likewise, they don't have all of their organs, and organs are types of integral parts. Those integral parts aren't there always at the start. They have to develop and generate throughout the course of the life, often the very early life of the organism. But those are kinds of not just accidental changes. Those are accidental changes with actual substantial changes. Again, not generation corruption, but changes within the parts of a substance. Then there's another kind of change of parts, a type of substantial myriological change. When a substance's integral parts are transformed by impairment, as with lesioned organs, or in type really separated with severed limbs. Sometimes that's what precipitates a generation and corruption substantial change, but obviously not always. And another kind of substantial change is a kind of substantial fusion. So whereas the first two I mentioned are more about integral parts, this next kind are more about what are sometimes called virtual presence or virtual parts. That's where there's the virtual presence or what I've recently called appropriate empowerments um, where there's, they're fused without corruption. So like retrievable elements, molecules, and other powerful property parts are fused into a substance or assimilated into a substance. That's another kind of substantial change, but it's not um, a type of generation of corruption. What speciation would be, would be elaborating and trying to identify a new kind of substantial change, what we might call deductive speciation. And this is where there's going to be the generation of a novel hylomorphic substance. And it's generated not by like one substance or another substance. Part of it is we have this, we have a tendency towards an error towards a kind of hylomorphic atomism, where you have a hylomorphic substance, and you might think about all the components within and how it interacts, but you treat the substance atomistically, like it's just this substance all on its own. You don't think about the way in which substances, hylomorphic substances are always constantly co-manifesting their powers with other substances. But this, this is, so that's what this point here is, that the generation of novel substance occurs by the total proximate equivocal secondary causes, which are inducing a novel substantial form from the proximate potentialities of a nexus of interacting hylomorphic substances. Now that's very, very technical. That's more just for the Thomas um, of who can roll their eyes. Um, and those, yeah, everyone can roll their eyes, but for different reasons. <laughs> What I mean by, um, very importantly, what I'm going to mean by things about propria and specific differences is a, a kind of standard stuff in, in, in Thomism that specific differences often have to do with the sort of essential constitution of a thing. But we don't just have our essential constitution. We also have these properties. And the most fundamental basic properties are referred to here as propria. And a book that I want to advertise just because I think it's so wonderful and so many few people have actually read it is Ross Inman's book, Substance and the Familiar, Fundamentality of the Familiar. And I don't, I don't have time to go into reading this um, to you, but it has a very rich, detailed account. So we've been talking about how do you arrive at real definitions and how do you get to an account of what substances are. And Ross um, Inman provides a very detailed account of the relationships of propria and, it, um, and how they are then related to how we get to actual real definitions. And very detailed, rich treatment of the metaphysics of grounding. And yeah, I just think it's a phenomenal book that hasn't been received the attention that it deserves. So how to reconcile these two? So part of it is adopting a kind of parsimonious pluralism, where we need to distinguish between ontological explananda and experimental explananda. 
there are going to be different ontological and scientific concepts of species and speciations, insofar as they can both truthfully track, describe, and explain different explananda concerning the reality of changing biological organisms. Part of the problem is to try to think, I think in the past has been treating as if the ontological species concepts were doing the same thing as the biological species concepts, and they're doing very different kinds of things. And this has been said before, but how do they actually relate? Hylomorphic species concepts are in the business of ontology. They're explaining the substantial formal actuality unity and the grandling of a number of attributes, including the propria detailed by natural kinds that are shared by biological organisms of the same essence. Okay, so hylomorphic concepts of species is focusing on ontology, but that ontology is going to explain the unity of a set of powers and properties, including these propria. These propria are often the natural kinds that biologists are focused in on. So when they define species concepts, they're focusing on propria. Whereas the hylomorphist is focusing on an ontological concept of species, right? That's going to be the relationship between the two. The scientific species concepts, of which we've seen there are various ones, and insofar as they're all truth-tracking, they might be truth-tracking different propria, right? Scientific um, lead, we try to explain empirically discoverable similarities and dissimilarities among changing biological organisms that unite them as members of the same biological natural kind. But we might have a different species concept in these different ex experimental investigations. So there's Meyer's uh, biological concept, there's genetic species concepts, phylogenetic species concepts, ecological species concepts, and they might all be focusing on different propria of one and the same kind of hylomorphic substance. So yeah, here's... Um, a quick list of them, but Dan had a much, much more detailed list than I than I have here. So this is again way too fast. As I said, if I went slower, it'd be much more convincing. It'd be completely convincing. Um, this is gonna, the hylomorphic species concept is established by a metaphysical analysis of physical compos, composite individual entities, and it's not going to be just for biology. It's going to be for any natural substance. Of their attributes, their accidental substantial forms of change. Individual organisms of the same species share the same hylomorphic essence comprised of substantial form animating its matter. Its species concept applies to all animate or living physical substances. If we take just, for instance, Mayer's biological species concept, not saying the other ones are false, but this one is focusing on some proprium, not all of them. It's established by scientific inquiries, maybe by population genetics, and the species are groups of actually or potentially interbreeding natural populations that are reproductively isolated from other such groups. And of course, there's objections to it because it's, it's limited to only like sexually reproducing organisms. So we can ask the question, why do certain individual organisms belong to the same species? And it's going to be different answers depending on the concept of species that we're concerned with. If it's hylomorphic species of ontological explanation, then each of these individuals has the same substantial formal actuality, unity, and grounding of a panoply of properties in virtue of having the same hylomorphic essence. If it's, for instance, Mayer's biological species concept, but you might be interested in an ecological one instead or, or different ones, uh, the empirical investigations have established that each of these individual organisms is able to interbreed with other individual organisms within the same population because they're not reproductively isolated from each other. Okay, so this is a, the slide that we had earlier. So, that's how speciation is then going to have to occur in these two different contexts. How do we answer this? What difference this makes? Why does this make us actually have to change 
right? Because part of the point here is this re re um, epistemological crisis. Why is this forcing us to modify? Because what I've said so far isn't necessarily that modifies the Aristotelian view. It's just more saying, don't think the biological species concepts were focusing on the substance. They were focusing on propria, that a substance grounds. But why does an evolutionary concept of species make us think we have to change something about the hylomorphic ontology? Oh gosh, let's not look at this yet because it's going to be overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's skip the horrible diagram. Um, all right, so I'll wrap this up with two objections and put up the obnoxious diagram and then we can call it, call it good. Um, so two objections. You might think that the problem here is we haven't answered anything, and that's true. Um, hylomorphism, well, not yet. <laughs> hylomorphism is a form of essentialism, and essentialism is incompatible with evolution because these two objections. Species are defined by populations or relationally by lineages, and essences define intrinsic properties belonging to individuals of a specific kind or type. And a second objection, essences and hylomorphic species are fixed in biological species change via evolutionary processes. For much more detailed answers than I'm going to very briskly give you, you can look at David Oderberg, Travis Dumsday, Stephen Bolzer, and Christopher Austin's recent and not so recent works on this sort of problem. Travis Dumsday in particular is who I'm following here. So to that first objection, an important way to respond is that the substance of a hylomorphic species grounds these natural kind propria, and these are what are the species concepts for biologists. What needs to change? Think of an analogy now with generation and corruption. In generation and corruption, we see a substance going through the process of having different attributes than it had already. In reaching a point in which its different attributes are so incompatible that it can no longer remain the stable substance it is, and so it corrupts. Adductive speciation, so the leading to new species, is a similar kind of long-term process that then leads to the threshold of adductive speciation, just like the changing of attributes and parts is what precipitates substantial corruption. What hylomorphics need to come, hylomorphists need to come to recognize is that propria aren't fixed in a species. So you might very roughly say that species have developmental propria, they have um, reproductive propria, and the developmental propria have to do with like morphology and the way in which they, they their various ontogenetic um, characteristics, and then they have various metabolic nutritive kind of propria. The old model is that if you, have, if you are of a certain hylomorphic species, you have the exact same reproductive propria, the exact same um, developmental propria, and the exact same um, nutritive propria. On this picture, actually, one and the same hylomorphic species substance, can, or one and the same hylomorphic species, can have and ground different reproductive propria over long periods of time, and have different um, nutritive propria. It can have different um, developmental, and we can go on for others as well. So the, the point of recognizing is that they can include variable intrinsic and relational attributes. And furthermore, it's in virtue of propria, these powers pertaining to reproduction, that populations become reproductively isolated. And likewise, it's in virtue of similar propria that as relata specify and identify relational lineages and their branching events. Okay, so there's much more to say about That's the kind of key point, though, was that last one, is that Species, hylomorphic species don't all have the same propria. 
their propria can change over a long period of time. But once they reach a point in which they have incompatible propria, fundamentally incompatible developmental propria, then they become a new species. All right? And the, the horrible diagram will try to make that a little clearer. All right, the second objection. The essences are fixed and biological species change by evolutionary processes. The response is to recognize that actual biological essences aren't fixed and that even there's certain features of essentialism that is essential to evolution. And this is an argument um, from other various people, but I don't know I have Jablanca there, but it, it's supposed to be um, it's supposed to be a bolter. But biological essences are not problematically fixed as ontogenetic and phylogenetic explanations can disclose. And hylomorphic essences ground and unify sometimes highly variable genetic, epigenetic, and behavioral natural kind propria. Oh, here it is. Okay. So Bolter set argues, and I think quite compellingly, that the standard account of biological diversity provided by evolutionary theory actually presupposes essentialism. Note that this argument is built on the fact that species do come into and pass out of existence, a fact often thought to be inimical to essentialism. In fact, quite the reverse is the case. Only if species have distinct essences can one say in a principled fashion that one species is no longer, no longer exists and that two new species, distinct species, have arrived on the scene. And one needs to be able to say this if one is able to give a standard account of biological diversity. As he says, it's impossible to main, that maintain that A, B, and C are distinct natural species only if the existence and identity conditions of each are distinct, which is going to be, there's a lot more to pack into that, but that's going to be the conditions for identifying what an essence of a thing is. Okay. Let us then conclude with this crazy diagram, and I'll just say a word about it and then conclude. Whoop, there we go. All right, so the top level are Marian species, okay? And a Marian species is going to be something that's tracking reproductive propria, right? And if the reproductive propria of a hylomorphic species changes, right, over a very, very long period of time, such that you come to have reproductively isolated populations, on a Marian account, you now have a new species. But on the hylomorphic account, the substance hasn't changed. It's the same kind of species hylomorphically. But what has changed is the hylomorphic substance is now grounding a different reproductive propria. Right? They are reproductively isolated. Right? And then there's obviously larger and greater ways in which this can occur. So what this is meant to, to illustrate is you've got rep or reproductive propria, dev or, re, or developmental propria, and then you could go on and elaborate this in much more. And at the bottom level, you've got a hylomorphic species one, and how does a speciation event occur in a, in a hylomorphic sense is at the red, and there's hylomorphic species two, there's hylomorphic species three, and there's hylomorphic species four. And the basic claim is that a hylomorphic speciation event occurs after a whole range of scientific speciation events have occurred already. And often this occurs because multiple developmental or multiple reproductive propria have changed and have become incompatible for the hylomorphic species over a long period of time such that it can no longer stably ground those reproductive species or those reproductive propria or those developmental propria and it leads to a hylomorphic speciation event. All right. I realize it's way too fast. It's a very, as I say, it's a meager, miserable model. Um, <laughs> But it's an attempt to say that there's a real problem here. There's a real issue within the tradition of trying to resolve it. And here I'm like, 
hand waving, hand wobbling. What's what's the most uh, what's the superlative form of hand waving? Uh, no idea. <laughs> hand tornadoing. <laughs> what was it? So <laughs> yeah. So anyhow, um, I shall leave it there. Thank you very much for your patience, and I look forward to your uh, very serious objections. I don't have Take a break. A sure. Or two. No, no, no. Oh, okay. We'll take a question or two now, and then we'll just push the break back a little bit, and we'll start. We'll recommence at two fifty. So, yeah. How about we take a question or two? Looks like. Oh, sorry. Thomas yeah. No, but this, this was great. Uh, I appreciate this, and I'm curious your thoughts on. I mean, I think uh, I, I like what you're trying to do, and I find a lot of things about it. Uh, and curious because I think this fits in roughly with what you were saying. Yeah, yeah, right. something that the difference though it would be is that um here what happens is that earlier on in the the life history in the in the overall history of the the phylogenetic history of the hylomorphic substance it has a set of developmental propria and um and reproductive propria say and eventually because of actually smaller accidental changes say like changes in sex selection those aren't like changes necessarily in reproductive propria Reproductive propria is a, is a suite of a whole range of other properties and things. And those you know, gradual changes that are occurring in a range of accidents and properties are eventually going to lead to where you can actually say this is a different reproductive propria. And maybe one scientific concept of species says this is now a new species because the reproductive propria is completely different. This whole suite of things that make up the reproductive um, lives of this population are incompatible with the reproductive suite of this, this prior population. And so now this hylomorphic substance is grounding a different reproductive propria from what it was grounding before. But that's not yet necessarily enough to change for speciation of the hylomorphic species, even though it counts as speciation on one scientific conception of speciation. 
And part of the claim here is that you would get, as what this is trying to show is that you reach a point where you maybe have two completely different reproductive propria and developmental propria, and that might be a sufficient condition for a hylomorphic speciation event. So I hope that makes it a little bit clearer what I'm trying to do. Let's take one more question. Okay, sorry, we'll get to you later. Sorry. How would it be falsified? <laughs> <laughs> because if I can know what to do to find that red line, because, well, you search this, so that's just one of the other MSR, that's another layer, that's a scientific, and it's, it's other things that I can't access, I can't even measure. How can, it, can I? Good. Yeah, so, so that example there, right, so, so there I think that the point would be is that on one kind of more superficial scientific species concept, there are different species, but I think on a kind of deeper level, they're not yet. They wouldn't yet qualify, I don't think, entirely as having a new reproductive propria. They would just have some like sex selection things that would have been like, down, those are downstream that are grounded in a reproductive propria. So reproductive propria is meant to be a suite of a whole bunch of things that would have to do with the reproduction of the particular organisms. And maybe if they're just their size or colors or even their ecological niche are different and that's the reason why they don't reproduce, wouldn't be enough yet for a reproductive propria change. And then, How do you know for sure that something is really a species that has different Well, so part of my point here is that you would, I think that you need different kinds of propria that have to change in the sense of you can't just have grounded different reproductive propria over a period of time. You need to have different reproductive propria and different, another kind of propria that's different as well, like, uh, like developmental ones. So that's, that's part of the claim. This is vague at this point in time. I, I don't know if you should think of like, there also have to be other kinds of propria that are not developmental or reproductive that also have to change in order to get a speciation event. So it's still very meager in the model of saying, I think you have to have at least two different kinds of propria that change and are incompatible with what was going on at the earlier point um, of, the, of the history of this hylomorphic species. But maybe that's not a sufficient condition. Maybe you need actually more than two, or it, there's not actually a general set of claims that can go on here. D does, that, does that make sense? So in the model, what I am roughly identifying is saying that it's, it hasn't yet changed as a hylomorphic species just because the first one has gone through three different changes and the reproductive propria. And again, the reproductive propria isn't just like one reproductive isolation. I mean, it's gonna be like a whole set of factors that they're like probably like, it's actually genetically impossible for them to reproduce. Like that's gonna be probably something like a sufficient condition for a reproductive propria change to have occurred, okay? But this hylomorphic species has been able to stably ground three different kinds of reproductive propria. The reason why the speciation event occurs is because not only has it gone through diff three different kinds of reproductive propria, it's also gone through two changes in its developmental propria. And so that was my claim here, is that because it's gone through two changes and two different kinds of propria over a however long period of time, 
That's why a hylomorphic speciation event occurs. And the reason it occurs is because a substance can't ground two kinds of completely incompatible reproductive propria and developmental propria. Does that make sense? Why those numbers? It's a kind of parsimony, uh, maybe three, maybe four, I don't know. But, but does it work? The first, I guess the first stake is try out two and see how far this goes. So like the next step would be to make this more intelligible. The third the step after that would be to actually like look at real, um, um, real actual um, phylogenetic models and, and, or look at some species concept or another and then actually like try to tell this story in more detail. Um, like give real examples of what do we think were the kinds of speciation events that occurred according to scientific species and then why would we or would, should we not think that also along the way um, uh, 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 hylomorphic speciation event has occurred, right? So as you can see, super radically incomplete. But the, but the reason why I'm saying two is start with something minimal. I don't think one is enough because the model requires at least two. Um, if the model was only one, then basically hylomorphic speciation events would occur every single time there was a scientific speciation event. And that seems unlikely. In part because the scientific speciation events require populations, or a lot of them do, require populations over very, very long periods of time. And this is meant to be something that occurs um, in, a single, um, in a single individual, or maybe, um, um, uh, you know, like it's, it's occurring just with like a, a small, um, like one, one breeding event. Join me in thanking yeah, sure, Dr. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.